Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because joining us today is Dr. Blaine Marchant, who is here to talk to us about sequencing a fern genome. Now, anytime you sequence a genome, it's super exciting because we're learning about what makes life possible, but ferns are a special case because they have massive, absolutely massive, unwieldy genomes. They've largely been overlooked in this realm, and there's just so many cool things to learn, including stealing genes from other unrelated organisms like bacteria. I'm going to let Dr. Marchant tell you all about it, but before we get to that, I just want to say consider supporting this podcast on Patreon because I would not be doing this podcast each and every week if it wasn't for the support of my patrons over at patreon.com slash plants. They make this show possible, so if you're enjoying it, please thank them, uh, but yeah, so many exciting things to talk about today. I don't want to belay it anymore, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Marchant. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Blaine Marchant, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about your work today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. So uh, thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be chatting with you. Um, so I am currently a postdoc at Stanford. Um, I've kind of made the switch to corn and kind of more single cell RNA-seq and kind of more developmental uh, biology at the moment, um, whereas my PhD was at uh, the University of Florida with Doug and Pam Soltis, um, which I really focused on um, fern genome evolution, mm -hmm. kind of putting together. It was basically the the beginning for for this uh, Ceratopteryx genome, uh, which just came out. Um, and so my future, my my kind of plan in the future is to kind of combine both my PhD research um, along with the the single cell RNA seq and a lot of the tools I'm learning um, in my postdoc right now. But that's all future. Who knows? Who <laughs> yeah. knows what'll happen? But uh, for the meantime, taking a break from massive genomes, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. Well, what, now that this is done, uh, a little break. Yeah. We'll see. Cool. Yeah. And so what brought you to this line of work? I mean, are, were you a molecular person, an evolutionary person, or a plant person? I mean, where did it all kind of come together to bring you here? Yeah, I've kind of, I mean, starting in undergrad, I did kind of more um, straight polyploidy work with Arabidopsis, and then I switched to more ecology, looking at kind of orchid reproductive biology. Mm. I, I went to the University of Puget Sound, so it was kind of nice. going out to... Um, the, the forest around the around the sound and, and finding this little orchid um, uh, Goodyera blongifolia and doing a bunch of crossing uh, experiments there. Um, then I worked two years after undergrad. I worked two years in Costa Rica teaching tropical biology and, and natural history. Um, and then I was applying for grad school and, and I knew I wanted to have kind of more of an evolutionary basis to to kind of my future research. Um, but I couldn't really pick a, a clean project. I wasn't, <laughs> set, I, I wasn't settled on something, sure. shall we say. Um, but fortunately I got in touch with Doug and Pam Soltis and, and if you don't know their lab, they, they cover all things plant evolution. Um, so it was really a perfect fit. Um, I, I got to do not just this kind of fern genome project, but also uh, a ton of ecological niche modeling as a research assistant uh, nice. for iDig Bio. Um, and yeah, we, we just covered so many different projects. Um, how we actually got to the fern genome project, <laughs> I was kind of just spitballing. I, I remember having a meeting uh, with them my first year. Uh, we we're just kind of spitballing uh, PhD projects, and, and I think it was... Doug threw out this idea of just let's pull together a, a fern genome. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's like, it's never been done before, and they're notoriously huge and notoriously complex. Uh, they had just finished uh, the Amborella project, uh, the Amborella genome project, um, 
And I had no background in bioinformatics. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd done molecular work um, in the past, um, but I, we kind of just jumped on it. Um, and I mean, the first big issue is we, we didn't have a ton of funding for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, no. so, so it was kind of just applying. I mean, Doug and Pam are, are, I think, are really great in their training in that they have their students apply for anything and everything, mm. regardless of kind of your funding status and regardless of how big the grant is, you need to have your, your grants always submitted. Um, and so, I mean, that, that was certainly a, a big challenge for a project such as this. I mean, any, ge any genome project requires a ton of funding yeah. um, just for sequencing it. And <laughs> I mean, the sequencing technology, this was 2013 and 2013, um, wasn't what it is now, um, <laughs> shall we say. So it was all kind of, um, I mean, our really our only option was, uh, Illumina short read. Um, and, and we wound up actually getting a decent draft genome by the end mm. of my PhD. Um, kind of more looking at kind of just general genome space, transposable elements, um, we had some very nice transcriptomes, which is great. Um, but uh, we we got a, a decent publication out of that, and then um, the Open Green Genomes Project, which is uh, led by Jim Liebensmack at the University of Georgia. It's funded by um, uh, JGI Joint Genomes Institute. Um, picked up Ceratopteris as as one of their thirty two um, plant species oh. um, for, for the OGG. And so they basically <laughs> pulled, pulled together all of our data, all of our uh, kind of remaining data, uh, sequencing data, and they just added to it and assembled it and annotated it and then gave it to, to our team to, to really analyze and kind of make sense of. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's been, I mean, yeah, it's been nine years of, of work, working with Ceratopteris and, and really all leading to, to this publication just came out. Um, so it's great to, great, really great to have it out. I know the, the fern community and plant biology community in, in general is, is very excited to have this. Along, all of a sudden, what is it? We're up to three or four fern genomes in the last month have been published. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, it, as far as I know, it's all coincidental. Um, huh. but, People yeah, have just it, been kind of building momentum ever since. Well, I mean, they, they take a long, long time to, to get ready. Yeah. Yeah, I, what a journey, huh? <laughs> it just goes to show you, like, you really can't predict the path you're going to be on and, and how f fortuitous to, like, follow them with such a powerhouse of research. You know, the Dr. Yeah. Soltis are just a, just a power couple, and I really admire them, and anyone that comes out of their lab is... Pretty sharp, so kudos. <laughs> they're, they're incredible. Um, they they really are the best people and and the the best advisors and the best scientists you can kind of hope for. Yeah, and I mean, wow. To I I read the research after it was mm -hmm. sent to me, and I I read a lot of the stuff that was coming out about it, and it's still just like it hits me that this started in 2013, nearly a decade <laughs> of effort. And I got tired after yeah. four years of looking at what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. man, that, that must have been a struggle to stick with it. But, like, for someone I know as a grad student, you come in, you want to you wanna get done, right? You want to do yeah. your work, <laughs> walk away, feel like you've completed something. And to have a fern genome just plopped into your lap, did yeah. you know what you were getting into at that time? I had no idea. No <laughs> oh, idea. No man. idea whatsoever. I mean, Doug and Pam, they're they're the most like optimistic, like let's just do it kind of people <laughs> ever. And, and so like they just threw out this idea. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Um, I, I don't, I mean, maybe I had read the, the Amborella genome paper at that point, but I hadn't done like a deep dive right. into, to genomics. Um, but I mean, it, it kind of was just the last frontier in terms of kind of major clades, plant clades lacking a genome. Yeah. Um, I figured, why not? <laughs> yeah. Sure. And here you are, but here I am, you know, it's, it's funny to me as a genetic novice, not knowing 
really the reasoning behind why certain things are difficult or not, or why some things mm-hmm. have been tackled and haven't yet. And, you know, sure. Amborella to me is far more obscure than Ceratopters. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about ferns in general, they're widely loved, widely recognized as mm-hmm. important plant groups, whether you're a novice or an expert scientist in whatever field you're studying them in. What made ferns sort of that final frontier, so to speak, with being very generous with that term, is sort of a, totally, a genomic yeah. tackling <laughs> event? What? Yeah. Why are they so unwieldy? Um, they're unwieldy because they are notoriously large. Um, I think the average fern genome, well, we've got it somewhere. I think it's about fifteen gigabases <laughs> haploid. Oh man. Um, and the average chromosome number. I think it's between 40 and 50. Um, So, so just, I I mean, nothing, there hasn't been like a a diploid genome assembled of of that size besides like the conifers. And and I think they've only got a couple like high, high quality conifer genomes at this point. Hmm. Um, So, I mean, it, it's certainly a, a testament to the sequencing technology and kind of the, the bioinformatics side and the assembly side. I mean, I, I literally spent months of my PhD just like reassembling, like just basically <laughs> pressing go on the assembler and waiting a month for this thing wow. to finish. Um, and that was using the, the University of Florida's um, computer cluster and, and an absurd <laughs> amount of computer power. Um, but I mean, the other major issue with with getting a fern genome is they're just not that economically important. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that, in the end, that's kind of uh, the answer to a lot of um, the reasoning behind a lot of these genome projects, right. especially the initial ones. Right. Um, I mean, conifers are obviously very economically important as just a source of wood and um, ferns. I mean, one can argue like a Zola, the water fern um, is a good nitrogen fixer. Um, It's been used as kind of a fertilizer. Um, But in terms of economic importance, (laughs) just not not a lot for ferns. Right, right. And I mean, again, to kind of put this in the context of the time period you were looking at this, it seems like a decade is not that long ago, but when it comes to sequencing tech, that's light years ago. And I can imagine trying to sit down and go, okay, what do we need to do this? The computing power, the access to it, the the time, effort, all of that is dollar bills. And if no one's yeah. willing to throw those dollar bills at it, it just doesn't get done. Doesn't get done. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, again, a solid portion of my PhD was kind of just, I don't want to say pandering, but like... <laughs> Learning how look, to. <laughs> looking for funding anywhere we could. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we, I think we did a, a pretty good job with the resources we could find. I mean, dude, the skill set you've developed in that alone will get you places. So it's not <laughs> for, it's probably sucked at the time, but like walking yeah. away, knowing how to do that in different ways is great. But, yeah. you know, I remember talking to someone uh, about genomes and I said, what, what, what is big? What do you start to consider unwieldy? And they're like anything mm-hmm. over two. So to hear yeah. you say the number yeah. you just laid out there. Right. Okay. <laughs> Right. Right. And I mean, we're certainly genome biology, genome research as a whole is certainly starting to branch out into those kind of more gigantic genomes. But I mean, this is still like, so where, what did we assemble? We assembled about 7.9 gigs. Um, This is still a large, large genome. Yeah. 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 And, and so why Ceratopteris? I mean, what is this? Friend? I think it looks cool. Like it's got these wispy <laughs> fronds. The pinules are like more feathery than anything. But uh-huh. w- why this fern? I mean, how do you go into the whole world of ferns and say, no, this is the one we're doing? And, and w- right. was there like motivation in terms of its place on the evolutionary tree? That kind of thing? Um, not so much. the kind, Well, I mean, it, it's a great representative of kind of just... Hamosperus leptosporangiate ferns in general, but the big, I mean, so again, back to the, that discussion with Doug and Pam all those years ago, um, it was between like a horsetail, um, I think Adiantum 
and ceratopters. It was all it was all ferns that already had um, back libraries, ah. um, bacterial artificial chromosome libraries. Just because we figured maybe somehow we would incorporate those. Um, I mean, even in 2013, people weren't really using backs too often. Um, but also, ceratopters um, has been used for like 40 years now to teach the alternation of generations yeah. in K, K through 12 and, and undergrad courses all over the place. Um, again, it's that ferns are great because you have both that truly independent sporophyte and truly independent gametophyte. Um, and so in a semester, these, these biology students can, can sow, sow the spores they germinate, germinate up into nice little gametophytes that you can see. Um, if you use a microscope, you can actually see um, the sperm and, and um, the archegonia where the eggs oh, are. Wow. Um, and then if you isolate those gametophytes, they're going to undergo intergametophytic selfing. So sperm and egg from the exact same gametophyte. And so you get a, a 100% genetically homozygous sporophyte um and and yeah so i mean and there's a number of um different mutants for ceratopters um labs have been using ceratopter it's i mean it really is basically the arabidopsis uh, <laughs> of ferns labs have been using ceratopters as kind of this fern model system for for quite a while they do space research on it all kinds of evo devo stuff hmm. Um. Yeah, uh, all kinds of plant reproductive biology. Um, it's really and it's really ideal. I mean, largely yeah. because it's it's easy to grow and a pr pretty pretty fast life cycle. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to hear how decisions like that are made in science. Sometimes it's convenient. Totally. Sometimes it's funding. Sometimes it's just hey, enough people have done work on this. Let's run with it, right? And, and I mean, if you're if you're if your partial goal is to like help the community, I mean, it makes sense to kind of just follow the most popular plant. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, I mean, I don't think there's anything actually special about Arabidopsis. It's just, <laughs> right. it's, just it's just everyone's using it because it's, it's very fast and it's got all of these resources that have kind of just kept building on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to like genomics, I mean, I'm sure any organism you could point a stick at and say, oh, let's do that. You're going to find something amazing new totally. insights and just really get a more thorough understanding. And, you know, we've come a long way since the human genome project, but I am certain that there is probably more unknown genomes out there than today. There are known genomes, right? Certainly. So every little bit we're chipping away is something right. new that we're able to pick up. But for those myself included, when you say let's sequence a genome, I mean, is that literally just laying the gene, like a, <laughs> a strand of DNA from one end to the other and being like, I know what this does, this does, this does, this does. Like, what does that mean in like a broad sense? Right. Um, so the process. Um, so DNA extraction, of course, um, you're basically uh, breaking open the cells, um, isolating just the DNA. Um, it has to undergo a library prep in order to add kind of these bar so you, you dice up the dna a bit depending on the sequencing technology it can be anything from 300 base pairs to 15,000 base pairs Whoa. so super big library prep you send it to some kind of sequencing core or some kind of sequencing platform whether it's uh long read is, is through pack bio often mm. specific or Illumina for often for more short ready stuff. Um, and then they're going to send you back a whole lot of A, T, C's and G's. <laughs> and that's really kind of the computer intensive part in, in having this algorithm basically find matching portions for all these tiny fragments uh. of, of DNA sequence. Um, so again, that's 300 ATCGs, but we have, in, in our case, uh, 7 billion <laughs> ATCs and Gs. No big deal. No big deal. And, and I mean, so it would be great if, if you could kind of just overlap them and get <laughs> like a perfect, um, perfect alignment, perfect sequence and collapse it all down into your genome. Um, but there certainly are sequencing errors 
and regions, repetitive regions, which make assembly uh, very difficult. Um, so you're actually, in most cases, not just having that single layer of, of 300 kind of slightly over, overlapped. You've got to go to a sequencing depth of usually like 100x for, for short reads. Wow. Um, so we're on the order of, what, 700 billion uh, ACT season trees. And I mean, that that's a very simplified version. <laughs> and so then, once you've got kind of that laid out, you've got to sequence the transcriptome. So you're looking, mm. you're grabbing some tissue from the plant, you're extracting the RNA. Uh, and so these are going to be RNA transcripts, um, just RNA transcripts. Yeah. Um, and so you sequence those. You're hoping that you get the vast majority of those um, that are like present in general, like that are in the genome. But you have a, a wide diversity of RNA transcripts. You basically do the same thing, sequence, assemble, and of course, uh, RNA transcripts are going to be much smaller. Like a, a typical gene is um, probably only a couple thousand base pairs. Okay. But but I mean, you can also have missing. You you can also have um, uh, alternative splicing in which you know in in which there are gaps within those transcripts. Um, so. It's not, and, and so it's it's not simple by any <laughs> means. <laughs> and then and then you take all those assembled transcripts, and you align them onto the genome to figure out where the actual genes are. Wow. Within that assembly. Dang. Yeah. It, well, and then you have to figure out what those genes are, and so that's annotation. <laughs> And that's kind of just similarity analyses looking at um, really anything that has had functional um, work done. Yeah. Like Arabidopsis. Right. I, I'd say like the vast majority of, of plant genes annotations originate from something like Arabidopsis huh. or, or corn. Because, I mean, that's, that's one of the few things you can actually do functional genetics, like figure out precisely what a gene does. Right. By knocking it out or um, mutagenizing it in some way, shape, huh. or form. It is um, fascinating to think that, like, yeah, you're, otherwise you're just looking at ATCs and Gs and going, like, that well, does something. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, if you think of just like the basics of it, it, it truly is just A's, T's, and Gs, yeah. billions of them, and, and trying to, <laughs> to, to pull something out of there. Dang. And mind you, this is why this supercomputing and why technology what? advancements make this easier, Much in, easier. In, in different ways. But like the, the, the billion computational thing, like I can't picture a million, let alone a billion, let alone right. seven, you know, whatever right. order of magnitude and larger. So, right. For, for my, <laughs> my, P, my, for my PhD defense, I, I came up with the analogy of like what a genome is in books. I forget what the calculation is, but it's like a 500 page book. And it's, I think it would be without spaces or anything like hundreds and hundreds of books, but like, it's just A's, T's, C's and G's. <laughs> and, and you've got, you've got to pull something out of that. Yeah. Highlight a uh, section and say, this one makes a leaf. This yeah. one makes this chemical. This it, one. Yeah. Exactly. Oh um, boy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I jumped into. <laughs> just spur of the moment. Yeah. My palms are sweaty. Uh, just yeah. thinking about that at the PhD level. Yeah. Dang. yeah. It, it was fun. Yeah. I can imagine it. And <laughs> so, you know, smoke and mirrors, black boxes, a lot of computing power. Later, you come out with this genome, an annotated genome, and you have done it on an organism that has a massive one with a lot of stuff going on. Now, yep. when I hear that, and, and you mentioned a little bit in your, your previous work, uh, ploidy, you know, plants are replicating their genomes a lot. It's a, a familiar mechanism, even in horticulture. It's been utilized yep. in a lot of different ways, but you found a lot of surprises. So is ploidy really the reason ferns, especially this one, have such big genomes, or is something else going on in there? Yeah, so, again, the huge genomes, tons of chromosomes, any botanist will probably tell you that's due to polyploidy. Yeah. Um, genome duplication, um, it's, it is highly prevalent 
especially in angio and flowering plants. Um, and so the underlying hypothesis for about 50 years is that there's just going to be a huge amount of polyploidy history of polyploidy kind of nonstop, um, infern lineages. Um, and, and so we actually found the opposite of that. Hmm. Um, yeah, we only found three polyploidy events in the last 300 million years, oh, which dang. is, which <laughs> is very, 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 very long compared to like any of these angiosperm yeah. or, or conifer analyses. Um, and so only three, one was fairly recent. Like it's, it seems to be specific to the genus Ceratopteris. So like okay. maybe, maybe 40 to, to 60 million years ago. But what's fascinating is in most polyploidy plants, you're, 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 you've got a, a cell containing basically a full duplication of that genome, right? And so um, you've got basically two uh, homologous chromosomes of, of chromosome one, of chromosome two, like right. perfectly, they're perfect. Yeah. Um, and over time, they kind of break apart, but you retain, like, a, bioinformatically you can find chunks of those chromosomes that match right mm -hmm. so um like you'll you'll see sections of like chromosome one um like a, a, a giant chunk of chromosome one um on on one chromosome but also another okay. it, it's called it's called synteny it's kind of just matching blocks of, of genes in the correct gene order indicative of polyploidy right if right. if you've got like a perfect kind of syntenic block that pairs up nicely um that's probably a, a polyploidy event okay um and so in angiosperms um it's very easy to to find syntenic blocks um kind of regardless of uh, even in Amborella yeah um, in which the polyploidy event was what 120 million years ago hmm. um, you can still find pretty clean syntenic blocks um, ceratopteris had just looking within its own genome despite having uh, a, a giant genome and, and 39 chromosomes we found like virtually no synteny Um <laughs> And despite having what we know is a relatively recent polyploid event, only 60 million years ago. Um, so that's basically telling us there's a lot going on in these genomes, um, in, in, in the Ceratopteris genome. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of kind of breaking up those syntenic blocks. Um, we know there's a ton of tandem duplications, and so genes... Like a single gene being like duplicated over and over and over and over again along a, a chromosome arm. Hmm. Um, we we found like six thousand of those genes um, genes duplicated via tandem duplication. Um, lots of, of jumping genes, hmm. um, tra transposable elements. Um, yeah, it's, it was really remarkable that the, the amount of kind of movement we we've seen in this genome that's intense and it's so bizarre to think of the time spans involved in the evolution of this <laughs> organism yeah. and the odds of this just not happening the way we expect it to with literally most other forms of plants or at least like you right. said angiosperms which we're much more familiar with but you know the other part that gets me is is finding all of those bits and pieces just doing weird stuff. And that to me is right. kind of confusing, especially as a genetic novice, because you have to ask like, well, what function is that playing? Is there a selection for that sort of stuff? Is it just kind of right. being dragged along with it? And of course, what this does is open the door to questions like that, not right. necessarily answers, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think with these the publication of these fern genomes, we will be able to address those kinds of questions much more readily in the next, I don't know, four or five years. We, sure. it, the, the baseline is really having those genomes available. I mean, we, we kind of just did sweeping analyses of kind of a number of, of subjects, but didn't dive in 
to, to any, yeah. like wholeheartedly. Um, but now that we've got three or four firm genomes, I mean, I think kind of, I, I can imagine uh, comparative genomics uh, is kind of going to blow up um, <laughs> going after these things. Um, there's so many more questions you can address um, with a, a, a genome assembly and especially multiple genome assemblies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, the functional side, I've been that asked that multiple times, the functional side of having uh, a giant genome uh, and tons of chromosomes, it, it's a tough one to answer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think they've shown, I mean, you've got all kinds of weird plants and animals that have just giant genomes or huge genomes or, or tiny genomes. Um, and it doesn't really correlate with uh kind of organismal complexity yeah i mean that in and of itself is kind of interesting because i think it's easy to fall under that assumption like more is better right and and here we are with a not to say ferns aren't amazing and complex like they've stood the test of time they're evolutionary success stories so something's working for them but then you know you hear of work like yours and then you compare it to work like i remember reading about utricularia the bladderwort genome being really good at getting rid of Yeah. So like, here's two really complex organisms on very different evolutionary trajectories that are still succeeding on this planet today. What the heck? (laughs) Yeah. No, it's tough. I mean, it's tough. And, um, yeah, I mean, in, I, I mean, the important thing is really more the genes themselves. I mean, utricularia kind of shows that and that, um, there's just not a lot of junk in that in that genome. Yeah. Not uh, people aren't going to like me calling yeah. non-coding region junk. We're but, a colloquial uh, audience yeah. here. It's okay, <laughs> yeah. safe space, man. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it, it's all about. It's not all about the proteins, but the proteins are right. um, certainly more important than the the ninety eight percent of the genome uh, that's filled with <laughs> other stuff. <laughs> Right, and repeat I, elements. I love sort of like the the checking of the human hubris to be like, I think we figured this out. Just to right. go into uh, situations like this with a single organism and be like, we don't know anything practically when it comes right. to what really the big picture is, let mm-hmm. alone the evolutionary implications of all of this. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, I think again, I think we're going to be learning a lot in the yeah. next next few years from all of all of these resources. But the most, one of the most exciting things for me, at least, because it seems so science fiction, is when you started poking around and looking, not all of the genes you found were of plant origin, right? Like, what right. the heck is going on with this? Yeah, so we found a couple cases of, of horizontal gene transfer. Um, and so, basically, the, the plants co-opting, um, I believe in this case, it, it was bacterial, bacterial genes, <laughs> incorporating them into their into their genome um and so the first one the aerolysin like genes aerolysin uh protein is this kind of um it's toxic and it, it's pore forming and it's been used for for studying kind of nanotechnology for a while hmm. but it's always been using a bacterial system sure um and so it's certainly defense related for for ceratopteris um, but we kind of just stumbled on that. We were looking at, again, all these these tandemly dupi- duplicated genes, these groups of tandemly duplicated genes. Um, and I was going through the annotations and, and found these aerolysin-like like genes um, based on similarity um, and started digging around. And no other plant at, at least according according to the resources i was looking at at the time no other plant genome had anything like it hmm. um it was all i think it was like uh sea anemone a couple fish <laughs> um bacteria of course um i think something else um and then we we kind of did uh, a more kind of comprehensive analysis and and actually found it in Salaginella, the lycophyte. Oh wow! Um, and so that's just within genomic data. We did expand it to all transcriptomic data, which okay. is is 
the the diversity there is much much higher right we've yeah. got thousands and thousands and thousands of of plant transcriptomes readily available but the concern is that it's easy to get contamination with mm. transcriptomes so if there's a soil bacteria or some kind of fungi um you're going to get the transcripts from those things as well oh. and so yeah, it's it's easier to get contamination uh, with transcriptomic data, but we did find it in every lineage of plants, with the exception of seed plants. Wow. Um, yeah, um, and it was kind of scattered, um, but it was super interesting. Um, I mean, whether or not it it's a horizontal gene transfer, like early in the evolution of plants. Um, and then a complete loss for, for all seed plants for whatever case. Mm. Um, I mean, even based on just the genomic data, it does look like um, at least the Ceratopteris lineage has undergone two uh, horizontal gene transfers um, of these things. Um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating system. I, I mean, that's another subject that I think is just going to explode in the next few years because yeah. it, I mean, again, having the diversity of genomic resources readily available, but also, I mean, we, we, we just haven't done kind of deep. I, so, so like you would expect, you're basically generally filtering out these things as contamination. Yeah. You're not looking for them. Yeah. Um, and I think if we stop filtering out kind of bacterial transcripts, we're going to realize there's a lot of these horizontal <laughs> gene transfers actually in the genome. Plants have just been borrowing and we're going, oh, no, that's just that's dirt. We don't need that. Absolutely. <laughs> Weird. But, okay, again, and I apologize if this is a totally novice question. You mentioned the size of these genomes, all of those ATs, billions of ATs and Cs and Gs. Also, deep, deep time, hundreds of millions of years. Yep. Is there a chance... Or how do we differentiate like the odds of it happening de novo and it just happens to resemble a gene in a bacteria? I mean, how likely is that? It, it, to me, that just it blows my mind. It, it, yeah. it's, I, I just don't understand. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I mean, as long as you have good kind of taxonomic sampling, yeah. you should basically see kind of an evolution Um of that specific gene. And in these cases, they just pop out of, pop uh, out of, so that's kind of the key with horizontal gene transfers is you find those, the, those genes that just don't have similarity yeah. beyond in, in, in more distant clades. Sure. You trace some sort of pathway to that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. That, that helps actually. That's something I've yeah. been kind of like, every time I read something like this, I start scratching my head. Like, what are the odds? Right. I don't actually know. Um, but I mean, horizontal, I mean, there, Oh, go ahead. There, there certainly are cases, um, where genes kind of just pop up. Sure. Um, I believe they're called orphan genes. I, I haven't done a deep dive on <laughs> sure. those. Um, but whether it's through transposable elements or, or whatever, um, yeah. it does happen. Yeah. Um, but based on the similarity of these genes to the bacterial genes right. and kind of that just break in, in evolution that, that they're so closely, um, linked, it, 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 nah. it, it would be, it would be quite the. Uh, coincidence if, if, they, if that was de novo <laughs> sure sure and i mean again i think it's just because it seems such it, it's like sci-fi happening on earth and it's not an unknown mechanism i know like bacteria do it a lot right. with each other but to think of like unrelated like different phyla sharing or you know potentially stealing from one another and adopting oh. things to work for them is just so sci-fi to me that yeah this has got to be a new frontier of Really exciting yep. exploration. Super exciting. Yeah, I, again, I, I keep saying it. I, I'm very excited to see where this stuff goes. Yeah. Um, I mean, even just nailing down like a mechanism and, and all of that, <laughs> <laughs> I think is going to be 
pretty big. Yeah, big time. And and again, this isn't the only example of a plant. I mean, no. I mean, Amborella has stolen some genes, right? And right. other ferns, the, it's yeah. The whole what is it? The mitochondrial genome is like <laughs> twelve different taxa or something in the in Amborella's mitochondrial genome. But yeah, it, it's occurred. There's a couple more examples in ferns. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it kind of makes me question what's going on in angio angiosperms that we mm. haven't been finding as many yeah um maybe us fern people are kind of just looking for for weirder genes (laughs) um but yeah i I don't know but i mean going back to your funding and sort of where our general scientific interests are charting a lot of the times you know angiosperms are slightly better understood they they provide us with more resources right. right and so you think if we'd be spending that much more just chunks of time on it, regardless of how scrutinized we've been, we'd find more examples of that just by probability's sake. Totally. Without <laughs> a doubt. Without a doubt. Man. And that's, again, what I love about this is it's not just getting a genome. It's not just annotating a genome. It's what do we learn from this and how many more questions come up every time we blast one and <laughs> put the effort <laughs> in to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> again, this was kind of just a... Uh, a light sweep across kind of all the analyses we could do with Ceratopteris. And I, I think people are going to dig into it much, yeah. much more. And to go back to sort of the process and you as a scientist, I mean, for something to have started in 2013 <laughs> and today we're talking about it, but it's not just recently that the, the press release went out and everyone's mm-hmm. finding out about this. I mean, how good does that have to feel? Have you breathed like a big sigh of relief <laughs> getting this off yeah. your plate in a way? Well, without a doubt. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, all these projects, they kind of just, <laughs> they, they kind of just loom over you yeah. regardless of, of how long it's been. I mean, that that's kind of academia, the, the looming project. <laughs> um, but this one has been looming for a, a very, very long time. I mean, I've, I've made so many close friends and colleagues through this project. Um, I mean, it's really just been incredible um couldn't have been happier that that doug and Ma- doug and pam tricked me into, <laughs> into doing this project all those years ago but it it's really been a blast yeah i bet and just to see the tech evolve over time too i mean that in and totally. of itself is pretty rad like oh man if i only had this five ten years ago <laughs> it it is incredible yeah um just the amount of sequencing data you can get out now the cost is so much lower um, again, the, the computer side, the computational side is, is way, way faster. Um, but I mean, these are still huge projects. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Much bigger than I envis- envisaged, uh, 10 years, nine years ago, whenever it was. Right. And so context is everything. Do you find moving forward? You're like, well, at least it's not a seven gigabase genome. Like, is that kind of giving you sort of perspective on a lot of the, the current work you're doing? Or is it completely uh, um, a different set of challenges? Right now, it's a completely different set of challenges. Um, Maze has a, a beautiful reference genome. Um, all my kind of uh, single-cell RNA-seq work, it, it's not so much the challenge of sequencing, but the challenge of, of getting high-quality RNA from, from these single cells. Um, so it's an entirely different project. But I mean... <laughs> Looking, looking back on it, I've been chatting with Doug and Pam. Like, what is going to be the next uh, <laughs> big genome project for us? I mean, we, we've got this one under our belts. We might as well kind of keep cruising ahead and, and see what else we can dig into. <laughs> mark, um, mark of a true scientist, right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, in the end, I, I really enjoyed it, and. I mean, it's all about diversity. It's all about getting weirder and weirder plants yeah. out there and published. Um, if you want to do an evolutionary study, you need you need those groups. You need those those weirdos. Yeah, and I mean, when people hear this sort of stuff, like I am all for science for science's sake, just looking at plants for the plant's sake. But like the mm-hmm. application beyond the genome, beyond the organism, beyond even this branch of science, you never know. You truly you never, never know. know. You never know. Um, I mean, ca- tying tying this all back together, uh, with there was a case of a, a horizontal gene transfer in a fern. So they initially discovered 
an insecticide protein in uh, a fern tectaria macrodonta macro something um <laughs> and they transform that into cotton and so that they basically um genetically modified the cotton to to contain this fern gene which prevented white fly and and helped co- cotton production a ton wow um but they found that that fern gene originated from a horizontal gene transfer away from fungi or bacteria um it's like i think it's specific to ferns uh feiwei li at, at cornell did, did a lot of that research so yeah you can you never know what you're gonna find um and again we just haven't had the resources to to do more kind of applied um plant science with with these fern genomes yeah um i mean they they are notorious for um lots of defenses yeah uh, not not a lot of things eat ferns so if you can start teasing those apart um i mean there, there could be a lot of potential for for agriculture yeah i mean you don't have a 300 plus million year old evolutionary history and not <laughs> exactly. learn how to not get eaten <laughs> exactly that's awesome. And so where do you see yourself going? I mean, you mentioned you're curious about corn. You're looking at potential new genomes to look like. What, where, where, where do you see yourself going with this? And then how do people keep a pulse on what you're doing as a scientist? Yep. Um, so I'm applying for real jobs, uh, professorships oh right now. Yep, fun, fun, fun. Uh, um, I think I really want to, again, combine my postdoc and PhD research um, really digging into kind of plant reproductive evolution. Mm. Um, and so my focus again right now is, is anther development with maize, um, using single cell RNA seq. So actually looking at individual cells, individual cell types and looking at uh, the developmental trajectory cool. of those cell types leading to meiosis and post meiosis. Nice. Um, and so my dream is to kind of just expand that evolutionarily, start looking at a, a, a eudicot, um, expand out to something like Amborella, um, the sporangia development, sporangial development of ferns, um, and kind of just look at kind of the specific cell types, the conservation of those cell types, look at, at gene family evolution, what's actually regulating the development of the anther or, or sporangia um, and kind of just work my way out um, from there. Um, Ceratopteris uh, is certainly part of that game plan. Um, again, kind of looking at sporangia development. Um, but again, I think applying a lot of my single cell RNA-seq protocols to something like the gametophytes and, and being able to pull out the archegonia the, the egg producing organ um, and or the antheridia, the, the sperm producing organ. Um, I think there's a ton of potential there. Um, and then, I mean, just teaching wise, I, I really want to kind of update this seafern curriculum, um, hmm. incorporating the, the genetic and genomic resources um, that we've produced from this study. Um, I mean, the beauty of Ceratopteris is like the, you can get to a spore fight within like 60 days. And so you can actually mutagenize the spores, mess up the genome as much as you want, plant those spores. You get the gametophytes. They might have mutant phenotypes. Uh, they might look odd. But then if you undergo intragametophic selfing, again, sperm and egg from that single gametophyte you're going to get a hundred percent homozygous sporophyte. I don't think there's any other reproductive, true reproductive system that, mm. that does that. Um, but then I would love to have my students learn molecular protocols, do the RNA extractions, do the library preps, send those off for sequencing, getting the da- the data back. And then you can actually do a course on bioinformatics mapping um, that transcriptome data onto our genome. Um, and you're basically covering like 
all of plant biotechnology <laughs> like in a single course. I think it's it's completely doable. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, yeah. So kind of anthroevolution and, and certainly some alternation of generations work uh, with ceratopters uh, is my game plan at the moment. Excellent. That's really yep. exciting. Yeah. And to talk about like developing the next generation of scientists in a very that, applied, meaningful way. That's the hope. Yeah. Always the hope. And so if people want to keep tabs on this and learn more about your work and where you're going to go with this, where do they go looking? Um, I do have a website. Uh, do I know my I'd website? Send me the link and I will put yeah. it up. You don't have d to. dbmarchant.squarespace.com. <laughs> uh, I don't have uh, any social media. Good for you. Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, or I mean... Google Scholar, uh, it's updating every every time something comes out. Um, or the the Soltis, uh, Doug and Pam Soltis uh, Twitter. I know they they update everything related to what their their grad students have done. So nice. they're they're very in tune to to what's going on. Excellent. Well, Dr. Marchant, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about this, and thank for making us understand it in ways because i know this is super <laughs> complex science so i appreciate that i i hope the listeners got something from uh, that I, I, it's it's a tough one sometimes they're a savvy bunch you did a great job so thank you again for that but uh yeah keep it up and uh keep in touch you're welcome back anytime i appreciate it thanks matt all right Have hang in there one. enjoy all right fascinating stuff it is super complex science so i appreciate him taking the time to talk to us about it I just can't imagine all of the amazing things that are going to come out of this sort of work. And again, this is more than just about this fern. It's about ferns in general, plants in general, but life. DNA is the blueprints of life. And if we understand genomics, we understand life as we know it. Or at least we understand it a little bit better than we did before. Of course, all of the relevant links for what we talked about today can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. There you will also find other ways to support the show, to give it a future, such as becoming a patron, picking up a copy of my book, buying some of our customizable apparel, or picking up a handful of stickers. All of those links are in the show notes as well. Once again, just head to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. You'll find them there. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone. <laughs>